FX Radio and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And with me on the line today is a researcher of great renown and a career spanning a few decades, and that's uh, Hub Regtop. So welcome, Hub. Thank you, Andrew. Hub, um, you've done a lot of ingredient research. You've been a researcher for many years. Tell me about your history. How did you get into it? Where did you start? Uh, well, I, start, I started in 1961 when I got a cadetship for uh, to work at CSIRO in animal endocrinology. Mm-hmm. So doing a part-time university course at that time took seven years. So in 73, I graduated with um, a, a major in microbiology and biochemistry. And I was working at that time also after uh, at um, Prince of Wales Hospital, uh-huh. uh, where I did a lot of research with Fred Hollows. I worked with Fred Hollows for five years wow. on diabetic retinopathy. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and basically microvascular problems with diabetics. And after that um, five years, I ran a pathology laboratory working directly with the diabetics. Uh, both type, mainly type 2 diabetics, and mm. looking at vascular disease in diabetics yep. or diabetes. And then also, at the same time, I started off my own veterinary company in 1983, looking at uh, researching nutrients in animal uh, welfare and also um, good nutrition mm-hmm. and problems that all animals have in a sense of intense farming where they have problems in the in the, in fact that the body is growing faster than the legs and the legs are having problems oh. both chickens turkeys and pigs yeah so at that time a friend of mine who who was running Bygland called Ernie Keegan he was the, uh, the managing director of Bygland mm-hmm. and he asked me with my research background because I was working with fatty acids at the time to do some lecturing mm-hmm. and that started the whole education process uh, educating doctors and pharmacists on um, basically real research and real uh, scientific data. So we started education courses, educating uh, practitioners, doctors and pharmacists. Mm-hmm. Uh, all my time I, was, I spent basically uh, educating and talking about the different aspects of research and what, what has been found in the scientific literature right up to date rather than um, um, you know, the concept of people saying, well, this has been done, this has been done, and uh, you know, we know everything there is to know about this and that. Mm-hmm. The example was that at that time we, we had herbs in Australia, mm-hmm. and the herbs at that time weren't, weren't very well defined. You, you know, it was a bit like um, going lawn mowing on the weekend and, um, and getting grass and drying it and then crushing it up and saying this is uh, well, this is A and B and C and D. Yeah. And we we discovered a company called Indina, which um, which Ernie and I were very interested in, mm-hmm. and, um, and they had what they classified as standardised herbs. And a lot of people in Australia hadn't heard of them, so we um, uh, we got all the data together, we got the people from Medina, which was a semi-pharmaceutical company, come over and actually show us what they had. Mm-hmm. And this this was the first time that um, sort of the concept of standardisation came to Australia, which uh, Ernie Keegan and myself introduced with Roger Wells at the time from HealthMinders. And I think at that time we were basically kicked out of every institution because no one wanted to hear about um, 
standard of those herbs. They all <laughs> thought they were isolates and it didn't fit the pattern of of, of a herbal extract and all those sort of things. And um, eventually, eventually, Roger Will gave us the okay to start the ball rolling. And that came into a few products. And then you look at the industry today. So can I ask you, where did the link come? When did you meet uh, Michael Hall and Sean and Alex Hall, who at that time owned Bioceticals? At the same time that Ernie Keegan rang me up because I was involved with the Marcel formulations and what the Marcells were. And and then Ernie asked me to come in and and also Michael Hall asked me to come in and start lecturing. So we we lectured um, extensively on biogland products, and they start the ball. They start the ball rolling, basically. So that's been that. That's now what 20, 25, 30 years ago. Mm. So I also then started to become a, on a commercial side where I was very interested in the fish oil, and I, I was instrumental in getting a big government grant for Clover Pharmaceuticals, which came on the stock exchange, and is Clover. Pharmaceuticals now in Melbourne, which produces fish oil. Mm. So they're one of the only Australian fish oil marketers, aren't they? They are. Yeah. That's right. So, from a broad point of view, I've just about. Um, and, my, and by the way, my vet company is still going since 1983. We've done a lot of work now on um, on animals. Mainly, the 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 big issues, which I keep saying, is, is nutrition to animals, which is no different looking nutrition at humans. And there's a lot of misnomers. There's a lot of furfies out there. I mean, if you look at our nutrition for a start, the agricultural revolution changed our complete dietary diet habits. The example would be if you had a, um, a cow and you let it eat grass you or a calf and you let it go to its full weight over two or three years, you'll find that the omega-3 concentration in most animals are actually around about 6 to 9%. But because we feed them differently altogether to get them to body weight to, uh, to market in about a year, we don't have any omega-3 left in, in, in the cows we eat. So we've lost, you know, because we're, we're, we're economically driven mm. to get our money back quickly, we're not looking at the nu- nutrients which are required for um, maybe our long-term health. Mm. You, uh, you've, you've done a lot of work with nutraceuticals in animals, if we can talk about one of particular interest at the moment, and, and I think the reason is because it's only just been made available to the Australian market, and that's vitamin K2. But you, right. you've been doing research on this for years. I, I remember you speaking at, um, in 2008 about yep. this. Um, yep. So, it's, you know, that, I mean, that's a lag time of, of uh, eight years before humans can actually take it as a supplement. So... Tell me more about the research on vitamin K2 because I think this is really interesting with regards to what you were saying previously with these osteochondroitin um, uh, issues. The history of vitamin K, I think, is important to start off with. Mm. The, was actually a Danish scientist, Henrik Dam, who got the Nobel Prize for his work in feeding animals very low-quality feed, mm-hmm. and he noticed that they always started hemorrhaging. And then when he gave them green things like spinach and other vegetable things, then he noticed that the hemorrhage stopped. So that's when the concept of vitamin K being involved with clotting was first discovered. And they got the Nobel Prize in 1943. And since then, the the, the thing that people still think of, and this is regulators as well as as the medical profession and everybody else, is the fact that 
Vitamin clay is only involved with clotting. And we had that issue with the the, the regulation authorities in um, APVMA, which is like the TGA, but it's the it's the animal side of it. Mm-hmm. And and we've we've done a lot of work since, and so has the rest of the world. If you look at the scientific data now, see the only protein that we were looking at at that particular time was was clotting, which is prothrombin, mm-hmm. which goes to thrombin, and that causes coagulation. Now. The prothrombin has to be carboxylated by vitamin K to become thrombin and causes clotting. Mm-hmm. Now, this causes the concept that everybody thinks if you have more vitamin K, therefore you clot mm-hmm. to death, mm-hmm. which is a it's not the case. Yeah. You can feed a human on the toxicology studies that, we, that, animal, that we've done on animals. You can feed a human two and a half kilos of vitamin K, mm-hmm. one pure, and not have any end result. Mm-hmm. See, once you've reached the maximisation of prothrombin conversion, the thrombin activate the the enzyme, you can't activate it anymore. Mm-hmm. And to give you an example, you only need 50 micrograms to activate prothrombin to activate your clotting system so you don't bleed to death. Mm-hmm. Right? But since then, they've found 14 more proteins which have to be carboxylated by vitamin K. Now, all these different proteins have different roles. At the moment, obviously, a lot of people know that osteocalcin, which is the protein which has to be carboxylated to put calcium in your bone. And unless it's carboxylated, you cannot put the calcium into your bone. And this is when we're getting into the differences between vitamin K1 and then the longer chains um, of K2. And and, and we'll come to that in a second because I think it's important to understand Mm -hmm. that that the, the difficulty still is, is that if you're a herbivore, right, and, and, and vitamin K basically is in all the green chloroplasts that you have looking around the garden, all the green things can take, uh, have K1, phylloquinone, because it's got to do with the electron transport system in the plant for its survival to produce photosynthesis. Mm-hmm. Now... The, the other thing is that the other dietary thing which we, from humans, we have ferment, fermented products. So our intake is phylloquinone from the green things we eat. Mm. And also we have aminoquinone, which we're coming to, which is K2, mm-hmm. which, which comes in our diet from fermentation and fermented, fermented products. Like, say, for instance, um, blue vein cheeses and eggs have got K2 in it. Um, Milk's got K2 in it, all those sort of things. So our diet now has a small concentration of K2 in natural food. Now, the the thing about K2 is that from a commercial point of view, there are quite a few different players in the world. The Japanese started the whole ball rolling by saying, well, the northern part of Japan, people people eating natto, which is the traditional diet, which is a fermented um, soybean, mm-hmm. uh, they people had less um, postmenopausal osteoporosis than the southern part of Japan. So the, the, that link came, and so obviously the K2 from NATO was exploited and sold to the rest of the world, and I think there's a company called uh, NATO Pharma, mm-hmm. which, which has a fermented product of K2 um, from NATO. And also you have a, 
both Norwegian companies. You have another Norwegian company called Kappa Biosciences, which have made a synthetic um, um, vitamin K7. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you say K2, the only things in our, main things in our diet is MK4, which is in generally in meat coming from K1, metabolised in the tissues to MK4. And we have MK7 now introduced by NATO and uh, other companies as well. And the difference in, in the MK7 and the MK4 is basically the molecular length, is that right? The 7 yes, is longer right. than the 4? The, the K, MK4 has four isoprenoid units and you have the uh, seven isoprenoid uh, co- uh, linkages on the uh, naproquinone mm-hmm. if it's MK7 and you have if you have four, then it's called MK4. So the, the MK7 is interesting because, only, and because of its history for, start, for a start. Um, and also now you have a couple of companies. One is, as I said, is the Natto Pharma, which has got the um, fermented product. And you have the, um, the, the product which is now also made synthetically. Mm. And that's a debate at the moment, which, which hasn't been resolved. And um, so-called synthetic one, I think, has been just recently accepted by the TGA, mm. and um, which is the Capo Biosciences, mm. has now been accepted by the TGA, but used in, um, I think, to 180 micrograms intake. Mm. Things are changing in Australia while... While overseas, it's been used for many, many years. Yeah, I think a lot of studies have been done in in, in Holland at the moment by uh, Kees Vermeer from Utrecht University on K two and its role in uh, osteoporosis and postmenopausal osteoporosis and the treatment of. So that, that's sort of the you know the the background of the the vitamin K story. Mm. Now. The, our calcium intake has increased because the concept is that we we um, hope that that calcium will go to your bone strength and your bone, particularly in postmenopausal women. But the the interesting thing is there's a good correlation between calcium intake and calcif- calcification of the arteries. Yep. And what has has been noticed at the moment is the fact that that the calcification of the arteries see the, the calcium intake the body has to say okay I need that for bone and I'll take that calcium to put down into the bone as much as I need now what I'm going to do with the rest of the calcium and the body says well they don't know what to do with it so I'll put it in the arteries mm. now the regulation of that is really by another protein there's another protein in, in the intracellular tissues of the arteries which actually says it was carboxylated. You've got to remember all these things are only actively carboxylated mm-hmm. to become active. And really what, what that is, is saying don't put it in the arteries, get rid of it. So that's what the vitamin K does do. Now whether, whether the debate is whether it's vitamin K1 with the vitamin K2 does a better job. Vitamin K2 has got a longer side chain, more lipophilic, and therefore will probably stay in your system longer than vitamin K1. So at the moment, the jury is out all around. Mm. You know, we do have that matrix protein 
MGP, which says take the calcium out of the tissues. We don't want it there, just want it in bone. We don't want hardening of the arteries. Mm. So also there is another protein called GAS6, which is growth arrest-specific protein. Yep. That's also in your vasculature. And what they've discovered is recently, GAS6 is one of the 14 proteins now nominated to be carboxylated and necessary to be carboxylated by vitamin K. Mm-hmm. And that organises your immune system, your innate immune system. So phagocytosis has to be linked, the microorganism, to the macrophage that is linked by GAS6. So you can now understand where the vitamin K story is going. It's going into an area where it's got to do with the immune system. So these are all new things that have uh, you know, been developed over the last four or five years. Mm. So, so with, with regards to vitamin K2, and you've got the MK7 and the MK4, I think one of the reasons that the TGA has um, accepted the listing of MK7 um, but not from NATO is that it can sort of guarantee a dose of MK7. Is that correct? It ha- See, the thing about the TGA, about the fermented material, is that they're not sure what other things are there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It, it comes from soil. Is it allergenic? Of uh, what other things are being produced during that fermentation? Yeah. Well, if you yeah. make something synthetic, then you're making it from chemical molecules, mm. which uh, is chemistry. I think right? the I think the thing that um, practitioners sometimes get a little bit um, I won't I won't be as strong as to say paranoid, but let's say concerned about is when they hear the word synthesized, they think it means automatically alien, whereas Synthesized really just means controlled. Um, you know, B vitamins are controlled, um, you know, fermented from bacteria and yeasts. That's right. And, and that's why we have them in our multivitamins. They're yeah. synthesized. But, we but, synthesize but, things. See, it's, because it's synthesized, <laughs> we're, we're talking about biological activity. Mm, mm. Now, you can, you can probably eat quite a bit of natto material and, and, and maybe 20, 30, 40% is not being active. Mm, mm. In fact, if you think about fatty acids, cis and trans fatty acids, mm-hmm. how much noise has that been made in the sense of trans fatty acids completely going against the cis, which is the natural form? Mm-hmm. In fact, trans fatty acids inhibit all the enzymic processes that uh, cis fatty acids um, uh, you know, mobilize for all our prostaglandins and all, all the other compounds that um, fatty acids synthesize in our body, hmm. the trans doesn't do that. So with regards to fatty acids, the trans is bad, but with regards to many herbal extracts and, and other sort of, uh, you know, vitamins and things like that, the trans is the active, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like vitamin E. Yeah. Like vitamin K. All the trans systems are fine. And so with regards to vitamin K, MK7, yeah. um, sorry, K2, MK7, You've got three sort of broad um, areas of action with regards to bone, the immune system, and the vascular system. Can you talk a little bit about what sort of conditions the MK7 treats and how it works in those conditions? It's it's basically what I said in in that you've got the protein circulating in your body. Mm -hmm. One would, as I said, is the the matrix protein. Now, if it's not activated... It will, it will induce calcium deposition in your arteries. Mm-hmm. So 
that's where vitamin K comes into. And, and I think this is the point. You've got um, 14 to 15 proteins in your body all wanting to be carboxylated. You want not to bleed to death. So yeah. from an evolution point of view, the prothrombin thing has such low levels required for activation. Yep. That's the first thing that's activated. For survival, yeah. yeah. So there's good evidence if you want osteocalcin uh, to be fully activated, you need nearly a milligram of, of vitamin K. Now, I think that's the difference. You might need 50 micrograms to activate um, prothrombin, but you definitely need something around between uh, 500 to a, um, a, a, a milligram, 500 micrograms to a milligram of vitamin K as a supplement to fully carboxylate osteocalcin. Now, we haven't fully established the immune system, what is fully required for carboxylation of GAS-6. All this, all this research is ongoing at the moment. So there's a lot of questions. Um, I think the, 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 the outstanding thing is um, the toxicity of uh, clotting and, uh, and worrying about clotting to death in the sense of an intake, high intake or K1 or K2 mm. is not there. I, I might just add a little... Um, a little caveat in there, and that is that you can't clot to death. But when people might be on a blood thinning medication where they want controlled thinning of the blood, reducing that thinning might be deleterious. So there's a caution with th drugs like warfarin. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. The doctors will tell you that your warfarin, I mean, it's interesting that obviously all animals like dogs and cats the, the treatment for warfarin poisoning, rat, rat poisoning, is, is obviously yeah. vitamin K. Yeah, yeah. And so what doses are, are used appreciably in humans? Can you give us any hints and tips there? There's one study done on um, MK7 and a three-year study on um, osteoporosis in menopausal women. And that was using a dose of 180 micrograms. Mm -hmm. I think from that's probably a yardstick um, in relationship to dosage. Um, I think the limitation will be cost. I don't think it's a limitation of concentration. Yeah. Um, I think that um, the eventually, eventually, um, they'll find that, as I said, anything between 500 uh, micrograms um, to fully carboxylate everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's probably on the cards looking the way research is going. So, Hub, with regards to the different forms of the vitamin K2, um, yeah. the MK7 versus the MK4, what happens is the, the chain length is longer in K K7 and it basically right. gets snipped off until it's a shorter length, the MK4. So what are the advantages of MK7 over MK4? Is there any different actions yeah, well, a bit of, bit of biochemistry here for a start. K1 gets converted in the liver to menadione. Menadione then goes to the tissues to produce MK4. Mm -hmm. So that's the normal mechanism of vitamin K metabolism. Now, that MK4 is in the tissues which we eat all the time. So if you, you'll find that chicken meat... And all, all the meat you eat have, has actually MK4. The Japanese use MK4 in, in a um, pharmaceutical industry, uh, and they use for osteoporosis in Japanese women, uh, menopausal, mm -hmm. after menopause. Mm -hmm. 
Now, the intake that they're giving is actually a, a huge amount. It's around about the 45 milligrams. We're talking in Australia of MK7 for menopause osteoporosis in women, 160 to 200 micrograms. Yeah. So MK4 is not very well metabolized. It's not very bioavailable. We're talking about bioavailability again. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a difference that when you're talking about the metabolism of a uh, structure and then finding it in tissues rather than giving that structure into your mouth and then hoping that it'll get to your tissues. That's right. Yeah. It's a metabolic process. Mm -hmm. K2 and K1, actually, um, MK7 and K1 have a similar metabolic pathway. Hub, thank you so much for joining us on the line today. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. This is FX Radio, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook.